0: Have you ever hung a horseshoe over your door, but you weren't really sure why you were doing it? If so, then stay tuned for this week's episode of Fabulous Folklore, in which we're going to be meeting a whole range of blacksmithing legends. Hello there, and welcome to Fabulous Folklore, the podcast for all things folklore, occult, and just a bit weird. I'm your host, Icy Cedric, blogger, fantasy author, and your guide into these rather mysterious realms. I've got some rare things to show you, so come on in, take a look around, but be careful not to touch anything. These things sometimes bite. Well, hello there and welcome back to Fabulous Folklore with me, your host, Icy Sedgwick. We are finally into May. Unfortunately, it's only the 2nd and not but basically the date is going to be on Monday because then I could have said May the 4th be with you, but that's just me showing my geek credentials. This week we're kicking off Maker Month and the original plan was to do a different kind of craft every week and as I was doing the research on blacksmiths I realised there was so much that I'm going to have to split it into two episodes. So in this episode we're going to have a look at blacksmith legends and folklore and things like that but then next week we'll have a look at the blacksmith gods so I thought it made sense to kind of separate them that way and then we'll be looking at things like spinning and weaving and so on. Remember we do have five weeks in May so that's five craft related episodes. If there is anything specific you'd like to learn more about the folklore of please just let me know using one of the usual channels. There is quite a lot to get through though so I'm just going to cut the introduction here and let's get on with this week's episode. So, blacksmiths have long been held up as having some kind of supernatural abilities, either for good or ill. It's not really surprising if you ever actually watch a blacksmith at work. I'm quite lucky to know one, so with the help of the witty smith in Sunderland, who I highly recommend once we're all allowed out to play again, with his help I've been able to make both a candlestick and a magic wand, so I am aware of how. Both fiddly, hard and time-consuming, the process can be, but it does look pretty magical when you watch someone taking a lump of metal, heating it up and then turning it into something else. You can see where these associations might have come from. And in Ireland, Smiths held such a high status that people even thought they had magic powers. Notice that I say Smiths, Because the term does refer to metalwork and it then further breaks into specialisms like silversmiths, blacksmiths or coppersmiths in the Middle Ages. But obviously we're focusing on the blacksmith. And it does seem prudent to start with the oldest story about smiths. And that is the tale of the smith and the devil. So back in 2016, folklorist Sara Gracia da Silva and anthropologist Jamsid Tehrani created a family tree. And they were uncovering the origins of fairy tales and there's a big long article which explains what the process actually was. And it's quite fascinating. The link is going to be in the show notes below because I don't want to waste time talking about that when we've got the stories to get into. So for our purposes, this is where the tale of the Smith and the Devil came from. It was one of these 76 story motifs that they identified as part of their research. And they could actually trace it all the way back to an oral tradition that actually emerged during the Bronze Age. Now, the story does vary in its detail, but at its heart, it deals with a smith who sells his soul in order to gain the knowledge to fuse objects together. Sometimes he sells it to the devil, sometimes it's a jinn, sometimes it's even death himself. In either way, the supernatural being upholds their end of the deal, but the blacksmith then tracks back on that particular deal. And he then uses his newfound power on the devil or whoever the being is to weld him to the ground, which, you know, that's thanks for you. But thus trapped, the devil then removes the soul taking part out of the deal. So the smith then ends up with all this amazing knowledge on how to craft objects. Now, this story actually appeared literally as The Smith and the Devil in the 1812 and 1815 versions of the children's and household tales collected by the Brothers Grimm. It did disappear from the 1822 edition, but that's not really important. What's important is why did this specific story have such longevity? Now, George Monbiot actually discusses the connection between smiths and malevolence, and he puts them in the same category as, and I quote, the wolf, the raven and the crone. End quote. And he makes links between the fires of hell and the forge. Granted, the only forge I've ever seen was a gas-powered one, but I can sort of see where that might come from. And with these associations, the smith becomes quite a devilish figure. And Monbion even points out that couples in Britain who couldn't get the church's blessing for their marriage would leap over a forge instead. So this kind of cements their association with kind of anti-Christian principles, if you will. That said, Eamon Doyle points out that even though iron doesn't really survive particularly well in artefacts, archaeologists have found iron sickle blades and saws that are thousands of years old in Egyptian tombs. Now, this is a bit of an interesting point because obviously people are hanging on to these tools and these items, but by contrast, Monbiot explains that in parts of Britain, people resisted iron tools for a really long time because they thought that there was evil in the iron which would poison the soil. And I find this a really odd belief because iron was also widely used to repel fairies. And we can see this in the practice of hanging scissors over a cradle to deter the theft of the child in its replacement with a changeling. So on one hand, you've got Doyle saying that, you know, people were using iron tools thousands and thousands of years ago. But then you've got Monbiot saying that even in Britain, sometimes people wouldn't use iron because they thought it was evil. Now, this argument essentially continues because Monbiant suggests that the smiths were separate from the rest of their village, not because they'd been ostracised for being evil or malevolent, but because they were actually somehow the rulers. And because people didn't understand how smelting or forging worked, people would assume that the smiths therefore had magical powers. A, that gave you the evil associations, but B, it also meant that the smiths could then kind of keep this veil of secrecy around what they were doing. Doyle disagrees because he sees this myth attain quite an important level in society with the move from the Bronze Age into the Iron Age. And Montbion sort of makes a point about the forges being on the edge of the settlements. Personally, I can't help thinking that that is quite a good move from a health and safety point of view. Why would you put something that involves a lot of fire and a lot of heat in the middle of your settlement? You would kind of put it on the outskirts. But that's just my own personal opinion. The idea is, though, it's just this sense of tracing the idea of the blacksmith as somehow being an evil figure because he's associated with the fires of hell through the forge. Now, clearly, there are obviously are issues with that because the fires of hell kind of become a bit of a Christian concept. But I just want you to be aware of the debates that there are between people about where this particular idea comes from and I think it's the idea of the smith outwitting the devil to gain the knowledge of smelling and forging that then puts him in this sort of almost supernatural position above everybody else. Now I must admit as much as I'm sort of obviously biased because you know I think blacksmiths are cool at the same time there is another blacksmith that pops up in legend who kind of it could go either way where he's concerned and this is Wayland the smith. And he usually appears in Old Norse sources, and in one of the texts, the Vullandark Vida, which I'm convinced I've mispronounced and I'm so sorry, but I've only ever seen it written down. Either way, in that source, Wayland was one of three sons of the King of the Finns, and he was quite a talented smith in his own regard. Other sources claim that he was actually an elf, which would explain why he had access to these supernatural abilities as a smith, Either way, it doesn't really matter what the origin is. He was obviously a good blacksmith and he was captured by the King of Sweden, who wanted to take advantage of these abilities. The King of Sweden then cuts Wayland's hamstrings to prevent him from running away. So this tells you the environment that Wayland is now working in. And I'm pretty sure that some of us can kind of suddenly go, hmm, maybe my job's not quite so bad after all. But anyway, Wayland has no taste for a life of servitude. If you take the idea that he's actually an elf, you can understand why. If you take the idea that he's this, one of the sons of the Kings of the Finns, you can see why. Either way, he doesn't really enjoy what he's doing. He doesn't like essentially being a slave. So he crafts a winged cloak in secret, because obviously he can't walk away. And then he actually kills the King's sons as revenge. And then he fashions their skulls, eyes and teeth into goblets, jewels and various other things like brooches, the king and queen are absolutely over the moon with their brand new stuff, not realising obviously where this stuff comes from. And then eventually Wayland ends up drugging the king's daughter because the king has given the daughter a ring that once belonged to Wayland's wife, if you can follow this. So Wayland rapes the daughter while she's unconscious and then escapes using the winged cloak that he's already made. Now some articles do refer to him as an evil smith thanks to his actions while imprisoned because obviously murder and rape both very very heinous crimes however he has been captured forced into slavery and had his hamstrings slashed to prevent his escape so Yes, his actions are evil, but I don't necessarily think it follows that he himself is evil, if you know what I mean. Later writers apparently didn't subscribe to the theory either, because he then pops up in Beowulf and a few other Old English stories, and usually when he appears in these stories in a kind of cameo role, he's usually an armourer or a weapon maker, and in some legends he even forged Excalibur at the request of Merlin. And according to English folklore, after he escaped from the King of Sweden, he actually lands in England and he makes his forge near the Uffington White Horse. And if you've been in the area, you'll know there's a Neolithic long barrow near Uffington Castle known as Whalen Smithy. Now, Mike Biles of A Bit of Britain relates the old tale that if a traveller's horse suddenly threw a shoe or something like that, he could leave the horse that needed to be reshod. By the barrel with a sixpence and then he would come back the following day and the horse would be shod and the sixpence would be gone. I do quite like this idea because it does mean that Wayland kind of gets a life that continues beyond the original sawsmith. And while some of the sawsmiths kind of just deal with his imprisonment, I quite like the fact that this one actually continues the story on. And gives him a bit of an afterlife. But he does appear as I say sometimes as being evil. Because of the whole rape and murder thing. But then in other cases he sort of. He lives on in English folklore more as a smith. And one who while yes requires payment for his time rendered obviously. He he will sort of help people out. And almost kind of like an invisible kind of sense. Now we do have a very malicious blacksmith next. Called Will the smith. And he lurks in rural Shropshire. And he also, according to Catherine Briggs, is the reason behind the -the will-o'-the-wisp. And in in this particular version of the legend, he's a very wicked blacksmith who's so evil that when he gets to the gates of heaven, St Peter's like, there is no way you're coming in here, go and do it again. And gives him a second chance at life to essentially right all of his wrongs. And instead he decides he's going to do even more evil with the allotted time that he gets. Now, the devil doesn't really want him either, and I kind of imagine that the devil's a bit fed up of blacksmiths by this point. And instead, he gives Will a burning coal so that he's at least got a means of keeping himself warm. So, obviously not able to enter heaven or hell, Will then starts just wandering at night, luring travellers into the marshes with this light that he's got, hence the -the will-o'-the-wisp. There is an alternate version in which Will actually tricks the devil into climbing into a steel purse and Will then hammers it closed, trapping the devil inside. As you can imagine, the devil's like, you know what, no, you're not coming into hell. So Will is actually able to get into heaven after all because the devil won't take him. And then in a separate version, for some reason the devil grants Will an extra life. I haven't been able to find out how or why. And rather than doing good with the extra time, Will does so much evil that, again, even the devil won't take him. And, again, he's left to wander between the worlds with just a burning coal for company. You may recognise this particular story not just from the -the Will-O-The-Wisp, but also the tale of Jack o' the lantern who goes on to become the Jack-o'-lantern of popular Halloween tradition. And most of the -the Will-O-The-Wisp stories, and I am really tempted to do a whole episode on this, so do please let me know if you'd like a Will-O-The-Wisp episode, the stories kind of cross over with fairies and so on quite a quite a lot. Whereas this version, it really it requires the wicked and malicious side of the blacksmith for it to make sense. And we never actually learn what evil deeds even does, but they must be quite heinous if even the devil doesn't want them. Obviously, there are then links back to this original Smith and the Devil story where Will then tricks the devil, particularly in the one where he hammers him into a steel purse. But it, the thing here, though, is it's the intention behind that. Will does this to avoid the fires of hell, not to learn the secrets of forging. So while in most variations his trickery doesn't pay, Will does end up in this weird kind of liminal existence where he's not in heaven and he's not in hell Because he's been so evil. So he's kind of the evil blacksmith who is eventually actually punished for that. Unlike some of the other ones. But the thing is though, trickery might not pay for will. But it certainly does in our final story of this episode. And that's St Dunstan. Now St Dunstan is the patron saint of blacksmiths. And his day is the 19th of May. So that's coming up. And I think when you hear this story you will understand why he's the patron saint. And he's a blacksmith, essentially, in the story anyway. And he's working diligently in his forge, just cracking on, getting on with his work. And he attracts the attention of the devil. So Satan rocks up and takes the form of a beautiful maiden. And he attempts to tempt Dunson away from his work. Now, Dunstan's so engrossed in what he's doing, he doesn't really look up. So the first thing that he sees is the figure's feet. And he notices that the maiden has cloven hooves, which obviously you wouldn't exactly expect to see at the end of A Beautiful Maiden's Legs. So he recognises the true identity of this visitor and he sends the devil away. Satan is not discouraged so he then comes back as a wealthy man again to try and tempt the blacksmith away from his work. And again Dunstan spots the devil's cloven hooves and this time he actually grabs the devil's nose with his tongs and won't let go. He even manages to nail horseshoes to the devil's hooves and won't remove them until the devil promises to leave blacksmiths alone. And again, I find this particularly interesting because if you think about the idea that you can repel fairies with iron, the fact that if you then hammered iron horseshoes to the feet of the devil, I imagine that would probably not be particularly pleasant for him. So obviously it is quite a huge punishment that Dunstan then inflicts on the devil. And obviously the devil, not enjoying this, then promises to leave blacksmiths alone. And I think this is why I kind of, that makes me sceptical about the idea of people not wanting to use iron in case it poisoned the soil, because I think, well, why if you're then also using it to repel the devil? But anyway, St Dunstan also extracts a promise from the devil that not only will he leave blacksmiths alone, he also won't bother anyone who hangs a horseshoe over their door. So it's quite a simple way to protect your home. Incidentally, if you are interested in weird folkloric ways to protect your home, I do have a free guide of five folkloric ways that you can protect your home, which you can sign up for in the link underneath this episode. I won't try and sell you anything either when you sign up. It's literally just, I thought it was was a fun read. So if you're interested in home protection in a folkloric style, then uh, please feel free to hang that out. But anyway... Thanks to St Dunstan, Smiths now basically had the diabolical secrets of smelting and forging, which he essentially extracts from the devil while he's got him pinned down with the horseshoes. And then ordinary people also had a means of protecting themselves from the devil with the horseshoes. So, as I say, it's kind of hardly surprising that St Dunstan is the patron saint of blacksmiths now. Now, in terms of whether blacksmiths are evil or not, I'm kind of inclined to go with the not. But as I say, I am personally biased and I do think that The Tale of St. Dunstan does kind of... It fits with the Smith and the Devil stories in the sense of obviously the encounter between the two. But because he's hes tricking them in order to help save other people, I think, again, its, it's intention is often the key part of these stories as much as what people actually do and I do, I do also quite like the idea of, of Wayland continuing to hang out next to Uffington Castle, showing people's horses if they leave the horse and their money behind. That's quite a nice idea as well. Now as I say I had been planning to do Blacksmith Gods as well in this episode and obviously it was already getting quite big so we're going to have a look at those separately next week so obviously that is going to include the likes of Hephaestus the Greek god who is I think quite awesome and also often overlooked as well so we'll have a look at him next week along with other tales from other traditions as well I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and I do hope that you come back next week for part two on blacksmith gods and other than that I hope you have an absolutely fabulous week ahead and I'll see you next week cheerio